Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very excited to sit across from the man. I'm sitting across Steve McPherson. I have a long history with this man, and I have so much to talk about. Uh, In case you don't know who he is, I'm not even going to tell you right now. You're going to have to wait because it's going to be so exciting. But what I will tell you is that Chances are, if you had a favorite show or have a favorite show, this man has something to do with that show. That's all I'm going to say for right now. But normally I like to do a cold open that sort of uh, uh, sort of gives some kind of a relationship to myself and the man in some way, even if it's a little bit or a lot. And I never really know where I'm going to go with these stories until I sit across and, and look the person uh, in the eyes. And the story I want to tell is, is one of, of uh, it's kind of fascinating uh, because a lot of times as an executive uh, in the entertainment business, you're in a situation where things come to you. Uh, if you're in the case of the man sitting across from me, Steve McPherson, who was the former president and chairman of the ABC TV Entertainment Group, you're a guy, things come to you from J.J. Abrams, or they come from you, to you from Jerry Bruckheimer. You're, you're, li- you're literally, you're just sitting in your office a lot of times, and your executives that you put in those positions that you trust, their job is to help find all these great things all over the place that might exist. And 
to help coordinate things where you can meet these people and hear these pitches. But even Steve will admit to the fact that sometimes you get an idea, you're sitting at a coffee shop, somebody just interrupts you and says, hey, how you doing, man? Sorry to interrupt you. I know I'm, I'm sorry about this, but I have this great idea. It's about sheep herders in the Midwest. It's a, and you're like, okay, thank you. Could I just take it? Or you could be at your desk at, you know, whatever during the day and some person you have no idea who they are emails you and they ha there's an idea there and or it's four o'clock in the morning and you're on your personal computer and there's some guy you met from Facebook like you know 13 years ago who has an idea he wants to share with you now legally as a television executive and a studio executive you're not supposed to open those emails you're not supposed to look at them you're not supposed to have engage you're just supposed to have some send back some automatic response that says, listen, uh, we do not ex accept unsolicited responses or inquiries. Uh, thank you. But, uh, you know, get the fuck out of my life. <laughs> and, and so but you can't help but open these things and look at them sometimes, even though technically the word on the street is you never looked at them. And Steve will even admit to the fact that probably in his day, there's been things that he's opened that actually became ideas that actually became shows. And so for me, I was doing a show uh, that was fairly successful, although NBC had canceled it once or twice and brought it back. But it had been a top 20 show for a few seasons. That was last comic standing. And... I was very fortunate to do that show uh, with Jay Moore and uh, a very close friend of mine, as well as Jay, Peter Engel, who before that had created a show called Saved by the Bell and done probably five or six shows that had gone to syndication and children's television. But he wasn't in the reality world. But he had this grandfather deal at NBC where he got percentages that were unlike anybody in the history of television. I mean, he was like a 50% gross participant in things where just to put that in perspective for you, like if he did a show, he would make more money assuming the accounting was correct than the network did because the network had expenses, but he would get 50% of the gross because he was doing so well back then. And he had a deal at NBC, and we knew that if we could do it with him, we could get better percentages and more profits and a better deal. And if we could get it through NBC, and at NBC at the time, uh, it was Kevin Riley, who is now the um, president of entertainment at Fox. So it was going well, and it was at its height, and an email comes in to me. I think I'm at home. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning from this guy from New England. And it was like a one-line email, and it said, have you ever thought about doing Last Comic Standing for Celebrity Impressionists? And I, like, my eyes were wide, and I immediately the next day went to our business affairs person at the company I was at and said, I want you to engage this guy. I want you to make a deal for this guy so that we're protected and when you lock it up call me and he easily locked it up because the guy had done really nothing in his life and i think we i think we gave him a producer credit 
um, and a little bit of money per episode if it went, and uh, that was that was fair for him at the time or whatever. Is never had a credit before. And uh, then I called Peter because Peter had always protected me on Last Comic Standing. Last Comic Standing was this weird situation where initially, uh, for those in the audience should know, like sometimes you go in and, and there was a time when we were going to pitch to, to Peter the idea of Last Comic Standing with Jay, and I had to be some, to some family uh, thing on the East Coast, and I couldn't be there. And you never not want to be at a meeting. But I'd worked with Jay for so long, and I'd known a Peter. I didn't worry. Jay comes back, says they're going to do the show. But unfortunately, Barry, Peter, he doesn't feel comfortable with you being an executive producer on the show. So it's just going to be me and him. And I remember Jay telling me that, and I met with Jay, and I said, look, Jay. I said, we've worked together for a long time. We've done everything together a certain way. Um, this is the way I would like it to be. Um, and I'd appreciate it if you made that clear. And true to Jay being an unbelievable person that he was back then, he fought for me and we all uh, produced it together. And I became good friends with Peter. And, and during each year, when you're fighting for comedians and the artists on a show, the network does not want you around. They don't want you, even though I picked the winner of like three of the seasons, two or three of the seasons before the season even started. Um, they don't want you around. So Peter would always protect me in a way where like I get there to the first meeting and they'd be looking at each other saying, why is Barry here? <laughs> and, and every year for like three years, even years when they thought they'd gotten rid of me, I would still be there and he would always protect me. So I wanted to bring him in to this project. And so the problem with celebrity impersonators was twofold at the time. Number one, the best celebrity impersonators in the world were doing people who'd passed away. And number two, the people representing the celebrity impersonators were crazy and they were living in a world of the past. So if you wanted a reel of one of their artists, you thought you were going to get a link sent to you. You were getting three quarter inch tapes. You know, reel to reel, <laughs> you know, VHS. It was crazy. But I got and compiled all this stuff as best I could, and I worked hard to put together a sizzle reel that I thought was great, even though the quality of it really wasn't as great. And at the time, we called it the imposter. And the first meeting we took was at NBC, and... NBC loved it, and they wanted to make a commitment, but the guy in charge at the time, Craig Plestis, sort of was like, sometimes executives will tell you something, and they'll be like, we're going to do this. We'll give you uh, 10 episodes. It's done. Don't worry about it. And you'll meet them on the set of Last Comic Standing, and they'll be like, you know, uh, by the way, that's it's going to be eight episodes. We can't really do eight episodes. We'll do the eight episodes, but we'll give you a, a good money and don't worry about it. We'll protect you. And then the next time you're on the set, they'll be like, listen, uh, we got some budget issues. We got to change things around. We're probably going to do like six episodes, but if it does really well, we'll do this. And I was just so incensed with the process and what we'd gone through being canceled so many times on Last Comic Standing. I talked to Peter 
And he said, listen, let's take a meeting with Kevin. Let's take a meeting with Steve McPherson at ABC. I said, I'd love to do that, but I don't want to get you in a situation where these people get upset at you and they take it out on you. He said, fuck them. They're fucking with us. Let's go. And the first meeting that we take out of the two is with uh, Steve McPherson at ABC. And one of the things I should tell you, if you are pitching shows, <laughs> there's actually two ways to get shows bought that are very, very different ways to go. And the odds are less in one way. The odds that are less for you is if you meet with younger executives that work around a president. Because the odds are that they're not going to get it done. But the president normally has like a slot or something or two where he wants to, he wants to show them that, listen, work hard, do the right thing. It's a good idea. We'll carve out some money here and we'll do it. And a lot of times you can get a young group of people behind you, like uh, Walter Newman, who uh, found Workaholics, or Debbie Liebling, who found uh, South Park and showed it to Doug Herzog, that a president will be rallying around. He, he sees a little bit of himself in these people and he wants to do something nice. But if you really want to have your best shot at knowing right away whether you're in or you're out, you want to meet with the big guy. And so that's what we did. So we sat down with Steve and his group, and uh, we showed the reel and the tape, and we had a great meeting. It was a very short meeting. It was odd because a lot of times when you meet with uh, people who are in very important positions of power, they don't have a lot of time. So you, you warm up, you talk about life, you talk about what you're doing. And if you have a great pitch, you may, might talk about it for five minutes, put the reel in, talk about it for another five minutes, and you're out. And Peter and I uh, left uh, in the elevator, and we felt really good about things, and we felt really it was a good pitch. But you never really know. And we get down to the parking lot and Peter's phone rings and it's Steve McPherson. And you know how when somebody's next to you with a cell phone, you can hear what's being said. And Steve said, listen, don't go back to NBC. Cancel your meeting at Fox with Kevin Riley. I will buy the show for nine or 10 episodes. I'll put it on this summer. And I'll pay you what it normally costs to produce one of these shows around 900 to a million dollars an episode. That's what I'll do. Tell me you'll cancel the meetings. And Peter looks at me and we nod to each other and he says, done. And Steve was always a man of his word. And he put the deal together. We had hardly any problems with the deal. The show changed to uh, the name, the next best thing. And we put it on that summer. And this is the good and bad of television. <laughs> we put it on that summer. And if I am not mistaken, 
It was the highest rated non-scripted show on the network that summer. That was the good news. The bad news was the average age of the demo was 54 years old. (laughs) So after our nine episodes were up, even though we were pulling a great rating, we realized the fatal flaw in most celebrity impersonators. They all did Lucille Ball, (laughs) Jackie Gleason, and all the celebrities who passed away. And unfortunately for us, our audience, the average age, was dead. (laughs) But through it all, I learned an important lesson. Number one, align yourself when you're producing or working with people, with people you trust and people you love working with and people who fought with you along the way. Number two, When you're putting a reel together, any presentation, no matter how bad the materials are, make it an A presentation. Nobody ever turned off the Academy Awards because the set was bad. If the content is great, they'll want to buy it. And number three, get in the room with the decision maker. Because if you can get in the room with the decision maker, you're going to get on the air and you're going to get your best shot at success. And that's how I felt. And even though I tasted failure, I got on the air that summer, which is more than I can say for most people that summer. And it was all because of Steve McPherson. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. 
You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just, I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I, I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A. and he said, you know, I got to meet you. So I met the guy and uh, I sat down. And he told me that 10 years ago, he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135 k a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor, go to globalcashcard.com, schedule a live demo on their system, Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standards. It's me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for all the emails and tweets and Facebook messages. You guys are amazing. We, we couldn't be doing this without you. And it's, it's, a, it's an honor to know that we provided a niche that hopefully you guys feel uh, has helped you. Um, these, uh, these interviews have been amazing. And today I, I promise you today is going to fuck you guys up. It's going to be a groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking show. So my guest today, uh, Steve McPherson is the former president and chairman of the ABC TV entertainment group. Um, he is credited with orchestrating one of the most dramatic turnarounds in television history. Uh, he transformed ABC with iconic shows like Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, Dancing with the Stars, and of course, The Motherlode, Modern Family. Throughout his 25-year entertainment career, he's held positions at incredible companies like Whit Thomas Harris, uh, Fox Broadcasting Company, ABC Productions, NBC, and the Walt Disney Company. Uh, he started his career by developing and launching the CSI franchise and then went on to bring to the small screen all the shows that I mentioned above, including others like The Amazing Race, Scrubs, Monk. Um, he's regarded as one of the most influential programmers in television history, in my mind. Uh, he's an incredible visionary. He's been awarded over seven Emmy Awards and won Best Show, get this, in comedy, drama, animation, and reality separately. 
Recently, he launched, launched his own company called Wonder Monkey TV. I wonder what the second choice was for the name. Partnership with Lionsgate, and he has over 20 projects set up at outlets ranging from CBS, Fox, Stars, HBO, FX, Amazon, and Xbox. What a shocker. He has a bunch of other ventures as well that we'll probably might have time to talk about, like McPherson Global Ventures, Promise Winery, The Original Moonshine, and Pure Pack, yeah. a fitness supplemental drink. But for the most part, we know him and we love him as the man who brought us all these shows. Please welcome my guest today, Steve McPherson. Thanks for having me, Bear. It's great to see you. Oh, this yeah, is I haven't seen you in a couple of years, I think. Yeah. I know. You look so young. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I'm feeling old as uh, lately. I was just spending a long weekend with my girls, so it was like... You know they keep you they keep you young, but they run you ragged. Two young girls, six and eight, out in the by the beach. My wife and I. So yeah, we do too. I have two boys, uh, uh, eight and nine. Although they look like girls, their hair is <laughs> down their ass. Your hair is like spiked. It's like I feel like I could run my hand through your hair. It's my hands a little would bleed. military today. I it's think. very. It's, it's got very like military. the flat top look. They it's went a little short on this this cut, I think. But you look so happy. This is what sometimes scares me about like meeting people who who are not in the job that they were that was incredibly stressful. And I see them after they're out of the job, and literally it's like they just got out one of, one of, one of those meditation tanks, and they're like, just you look so like relaxed and, and, and like you're actually enjoying your life. And when I used to see you before, it was like you were Atlas. You had the weight of the world on your shoulders. No, I mean, listen, I, I'm lucky, you know, I, one of those guys who was able to step away and get perspective. And, you know, I was a type A kind of guy and executive and spent 25 years climbing the ladder. And a lot of times you don't really look at what the ladder is. And so some of those jobs, while, you know, power and money are certainly not something that, you know, is unattractive. Um, just the stress of those jobs and the, and you end up, you know, I got into this business to be on the creative side and you get farther and farther away from that, the higher you climb. So I, I feel great. I feel like I'm, you know, one of the lucky guys out here. It's, it's really great. You are one of the lucky guys, but you're also, you know, it's not all about luck and we're going to talk about that because it takes a lot of navigation, takes a lot of skill. And because what's amazing that you realize what you probably don't realize as much unless you sit back uh, in a dark room is that <clears throat> there's a lot of people who you started with in your first entertainment jobs and all throughout the jobs that you had getting to be the president and chairman of ABC and all that, the production and the network, a lot of guys didn't make it. A lot of guys went away. A lot of guys went home, but you never went home. You figure out a way to navigate and that's what's so amazing about your journey is that you're in a situation in every job you had in those 25 years on the way up where no one wanted you to win <laughs> even though they were smiling they gave you hugs they were like hey steve great job this not one person in those offices wanted you to rise and that's one of the things that our audience should understand is that wherever you are, whatever office you're in, whatever, I don't care if you're at McDonald's and flipping burgers, or if you're in a law firm and your name isn't on the door yet, or if you're doing a residency at a hospital, no one wants to see you get bigger 
and more successful than them. No, it's, I mean, Brandon Tartikoff, I think, had it best when he said they're beggars and choosers, you know, and just by the nature of those positions, you know, when you're a chooser, you're saying no 1,500 times a year and you're saying yes 10. So by the nature of it, you're just, people are rooting against you because it's hard. It's hard to be a seller and come in and constantly being rejected, et cetera, and, and still keep your, you know, your oomph about you and keep going back for it. Absolutely. So like I like to do here, I like to go back way, way, way back right, right. to about a month or a year before you ever had any idea of being in the entertainment business. Where were you? Where'd you grow up? Was it a rough time? And what, what was the impetus to getting in the business? I, uh, yeah, I was in Princeton, New Jersey. I was working for um, a Wall Street firm called Commodities Corporation because um, I had graduated from Cornell in the 80s and I was a political science major and it was a theater arts minor and everyone was like, what you do is you go to Wall Street and you make money. That's what we do here at the Ivy League schools and that's what it's the 80s and you know, greed is good. Um, so I went to Wall Street uh, and, I, and I found myself about about two to three years into that. And I ended up spending four and a half years in, uh, in that job, but I just found it very empty. It was, you know, you work all year long and at the end of the year, they give you a number and you either made a number or you lost a number. And there was nothing created. Um, you were making, you know, mostly wealthy people wealthier, uh, or you're losing their money and then they hate you. Um, and so I, you know, had one of those kind of classic, I was dating a girl, um, Wendy Wheeler, who like broke my heart. And uh, so I was sitting there in a job that I hated, my love of my life at that point, I thought had, you know, had left me. And, you know, I had this theater uh, interest um, where I'd done directing and some acting and writing. And, and I had one friend out here, Kevin Riley, actually, who at that point was probably a production assistant or something. Yeah, and he was at the time, he was a... I don't know if he was a production assistant at that time, but he was, uh, I think his first job was working for Brandon Tartikoff. Yes. He eventually got that, but he started in like publicity and product placement. I remember he was like trying to get, you know, the brand of toilet paper in the like appropriate show or whatever. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, he was a great friend. I went to college with him. He's a fraternity brother. And I literally remember him calling up and saying, come on out. You'll get a job. It'll be no problem. It's going to be fantastic. Just get out here. And I moved across the country. I flew to uh, uh, actually to Davis, California. I knew a friend there, bought a car, drove down to L.A., and I was promptly out of work for about nine months. <laughs> and I remember I was like, Kevin, I thought it was going to be. And he was like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But um, and then he eventually uh, my first job was actually at Wit Thomas, like you mentioned. And I was a PA slash personal slave. Now tell me the shows that were on the air that were big juggernaut hits for Wit Thomas during the time when you came there. Well, they were they were killing it. They had uh, Benson, Golden Girls, Empty Nest. And then some shows that are a little bit less known, but like Whoops, if you remember that, uh, Nurses. Um, what else did they have going when they were there? Uh, well, they had just done Dead Poet Society, the movie. It was their first movie, correct? Yeah, yeah. And they were, so they they literally occupied the entire Renmar Studios. And which was amazing at the time, I'll never forget, because uh, Dead Poet Society, normally every production company 
has a certain lane, you know, that they work on. They're, with Thomas, their lane was more broad comedy, I would say. Yeah, correct? absolutely. Very absolutely. broad with soap and things like that, correct? Yep. And and when they did the film Dead Poet Society, I was stunned because here was a movie that was totally a different thing, and they'd never done a movie before, and here they even made that successful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, interesting fact, I, when I was there, which is 25 years ago, I read a script called The Gardener, which last year Paul Witt got made as um, A Better Life. It got uh, some really good press, a nice movie, but that's the, that's the movie business for you, 25 years in development. Wow. All right, so you're you're getting coffee and making copies of with Thomas <laughs> and uh, with Thomas Harris, yeah. and then what? How do you move up? You know, I there, you know, Tony was a great guy, and I was kind of Tony's personal valet, and so I would drive him around town. Um, and uh, now, this is the thing about being a PA that's weird is that technically speaking, in our business, you're supposed to do things that are related to the business. <laughs> But as Steve will tell you, uh, a great percentage of the things he did there probably were not related to any business. No, no. It was like, you know, go to Balloon Lagoon, get, you know, a dozen <laughs> balloons for, you know, Katie's birthday and then, you know, bring them over here. Balloon you know, Lagoon. And occasionally you would be on the set and, you know, you would get some, you know, remedial kind of training of like cleaning up the craft service table or something like that. But yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was a, it was a lot of fun though. I mean, you know, you're young, you're in jeans and a t-shirt and, uh, you know, it's your first entry into the business and they had a lot going on. And, uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was really cool. But then I started reading scripts for Tony, um, because <laughs> as much as I love Tony, he was the kind of guy, like I would drive him everywhere he would go in his car, but I would drive him to a movie screening and Rather than say, like, listen, I'll be back in, you know, three hours so you can just be back in three hours. He'd be like, wait here. <laughs> and so I'd be out in the parking lot in Burbank and I was like, I got to do something. So I just asked him if I could read scripts and uh, start reading his scripts. And then one thing led to another. He put me in his development department. And that was my first real gig. You know, But one thing led to another because you asked him. Yes. Could you read scripts? You yeah. took the initiative. Yeah. When no other intern or any other PA was doing it, you're reading the scripts. And chances are, when you felt comfortable enough, you gave him your opinion on those scripts. No, that was the whole thing is that, you know, you, and, you tried to edge in your, your thoughts and hope that they, you know, they were what he, he was hoping for. So, Did you ever read anything that ended up getting on the air? Oh, that, sure. And I'm talking at that point in time. Yeah, pilots, you know, that got on the air. There was nothing that came through at that point that... Um, you know, became a Golden Girls or a soap or something like that. But So then you move up in their department, you're in the development department, which means you're taking meetings, you're trying to get people in that are going to pitch, and your whole goal as a development executive, for those in our audience that don't know, honestly, your goal is to get something that you have your fingerprints on on the air. Yeah, Because exactly. if you can do that, then you win. Part of the thing about Walter Newman, who was here, who was an assistant of Comedy Central, you know, it's it's tough, especially at a place like Comedy Central. There's not a lot of real estate to get shows on. And if there's 10 executives in the office there, chances are all 10 aren't going to get shit on the air. 
And so you're relying on people if you're an assistant to bring stuff or whatever, and you don't know what's going to happen. And one of the things that he did what was fascinating when he found mail order comedy, instead of putting the disc just on the person's desk who he was at, he made copies and put them on everybody's desk. Smart, smart. So he had his fingerprints on that particular thing if it went. Yeah. And when it became workaholics, then, then it began, obviously yeah. he got offers to do other things everywhere. Now he's an adult swim running comedy development. But, <laughs> That's awesome. But so you're in development. So you're, you, there's a lot of development people there too. Not a yeah. lot, but there's a significant amount. Um, I believe uh, Peter Aronson was yeah, there Peter at the Aronson time. Was there. Running de- he was in development too at the time yeah. with you. Mitch Hurwitz was uh, just starting his writing career, and as Mitch, was Mark Cherry. And Mitch Hurwitz, of course, Arrested Development, uh, won an Emmy for that best show. And Mark Cherry, also Emmy yeah. Award winner for Desperate Housewives, Relationships, which we're going to talk about. Huge. And huge. so you're running, you're in development. Tell me some something that happened that that got you to the next level. Um, you know. I got, I started to get noticed as, as really understanding material. Um, that was really my theater background, I think. And, uh, and Pete Aronson was actually my boss for a little while and he was great at guiding, giving me a lot of exposure. Um, but during that time I met uh, a guy named Dan McDermott who has become a writer, but was a, an executive for many, many years. And he was over at Fox and he was running current programming there back when Chernin was the president of the network. Peter Chernin. Yeah, Peter Chernin, sorry. Um, you know, Jamie Kellner was still there. Um, and uh, Dan had, and I had met socially through Kevin, and uh, he knew that I was kind of looking to move up. And out of the blue, right at the beginning of season, he one of his executives blew out. I can't remember why. And uh, he called me and he said, I've got a job. Can you start on Monday? And it was, you know, like, thank God. Yeah, absolutely. And this was at, uh, this was at Fox broadcast. Now, yeah. now and I became a manager of current programming. Now what's interesting is you had to have done something to merit being offered that job besides the relationship. So there had to be something that was happening there where you were recognized, just not just understanding material, but you, you hadn't, align yourself with anything at with Thomas Harris that actually had gotten on the air at that point in time. Right. right. So how do you think you moved up knowing that you didn't technically accomplish the goal that you set out for as a development executive at with Thomas Harris? Part of it, I think was that because I had spent like five years, almost five years on wall street, I was actually, you know, four to five years older than most of the people in the job I was in. And so, you know, the current programming a lot is about managing relationships and being an adult and being the conduit to the different departments. So I think, you know, Dan ran me through the ringer in terms of understanding material and understanding how shows ran. And I had a good basis for that from Whit Thomas. Um, But I think, honestly, one of the things that appealed to him was that he was getting a more seasoned individual who had spent more time in the business world, um, albeit on Wall Street, and then had this creative background as well. Um, that was really the reason that I got that that early gig. So you get the Fox in the early 2000s, or is it in the late 1990s? Late late 90s, yeah. And so the, the shows that are there at that time, is that when Doug Herzog spent a year and a half there? Or is no, that... that was way after, actually. I was there well before that. Got the it. big show, I, I covered the Ben Stiller show. 
God. Which was fantastic. Which was nominated or he won an Emmy, it right? It won the Emmy after it had been canceled. It was a sketch show. Yeah. I remember it vividly. It was Judd Apatow was running it. It had Andy Dick, yes. uh, Bob Odenkirk. Um, um, it was an amazing show, but it, was, it, it was just a never got show. traction. And, and then Martin it, Lawrence. A Martin Lawrence remember show. Remember the right, Martin yeah. show, yeah. I remember just... One thing that I remember about the Ben Stiller show... Uh, which will be shocking to the audience, is Andy Dick. Um, ben had hired Andy. He had no experience. He had never done really anything, but a lot of people hadn't. But And Andy was always a troubled guy. But when the red light went on in the camera, I mean, a genius. Oh, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. A, a genius. Because he had no boundaries in life. So. No fear, no boundaries. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was fantastic. I ended up working with him years later on news radio. Yeah. Uh, and he was still a troubled guy, but still one of the funniest guys when the camera rolled. Again, relationships. Yeah. Yep. All right, so you're at Fox. Uh, tell me what happens there that moves the needle, that gets you to the next level. Um, I think, you know, I had a, a relationship that started there with uh, Amy Adelson and Brandon Stoddard, um, who had a, a show that was uh, in development and never made it to the air. But I started working with them and they were at ABC Productions before Disney bought ABC. So it was ABC Cap Cities. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, every network uh, has their own production company. Um and so the goal is to develop shows through that production company, get them on the network, and there's an incredible uh, savings. And also in syndication, you align yourself to the point where all the money comes into the particular coffers of that uh, network and that corporation. There's only, I believe, uh, very few companies who are not aligned with the networks who do television series at this moment. One of them is the group that you're aligned with now, Lionsgate. One is Sony. Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, you can name them on half a hand. Yeah, they're smaller. Yeah, And so, because, and those companies have to self-finance things. So when Sony ha does a pilot for, let's say, let's say Steve decides that he wants to do a, a show with Sony, and the drama pilot cost eight million dollars. It's you know, hey, you want to do the pilot? Spend the eight million dollars. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really uh, fascinating um, situation there. So, but that's why a lot of networks have their things. What's even more crazy is when a network has their <laughs> production company, and the network passes on their show, and then <laughs> they go to another network, and it goes at the other network. Yeah, which oh. gets a little bit awkward, but. Let's keep going with let's <laughs> that's keep happened so many times yeah. too. I mean, um, but so so I I had drummed up a relationship and and honestly, you know, Judd Apatow and Ben Stiller uh, were huge advocates for me. And then Chris Albrecht, I did a show with him called Down the Shore, who's now the president of Stars and the former president of HBO. Who's yeah, done the podcast, and he was just starting um, HBO Independent Productions, which is HIP, um, which did Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, and so, you know, I had these kind of industry, established industry stars to some extent who really, you know, started to help me and talk about me and make the calls if I needed them. And they got me into with Brandon and Amy. And um, after uh, about two years at Fox, I moved 
to uh, ABC Productions as uh, their head of just drama to start and then moved up uh, to eventually run all of development just at the moment when Disney bought ABC. <laughs> which, which, <laughs> we went out of business. <laughs> which we're going to talk about for a second. But, but getting back, this is another thing that's interesting about your career, which is to me fascinating, is that you spend two years at Fox you really can't point to anything that you had your fingerprints on that went on the air and went the distance. Yep. So here's another gig where you spend another two years. It could be argued that on paper, you didn't get the job done the way you wanted to get it mm -hmm. done, which was to get a show on the air that was a hit. Right. So you, yet you move up again. Well, in so current, you're a navigator. Though, you're yeah. a navigator in these relationships, and people love you, and they they realize you have. It's almost like it's almost like in baseball when you have like an amazing defensive player, like the best defensive player yeah. in the game, but he's probably hitting like 250. You still want him in the lineup every day. Total. And you know the 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 frustrating thing about current programming is that. You don't choose it. You know, they just come at the end of the day and go, here are the three shows that we're going to bet all our money on. And then you're involved in it, which is great training. And it's kind of like an MBA of television. But it's, you know, you want to eventually get into either the position where you're the one selling the stuff or you're the one buying the stuff. Could you just explain to our audience what a current executive is? Because there's, there's two kinds of current executives in my mind. There's the kind of current network executive who you get there and you're hired and you're like, you're the current executive. All oh, right, this is exciting. What's my job? Uh, you just show up uh, to the table reads and to the note sessions and just just put your you say a few things like, hey, there should be a black character instead of a white character on that show and have Chappelle uh, run off in the distance. So, no, but you just you're you're commenting, you're making notes on shows, and you're there and you're that person listening and after the talking with the executives. But then there's another kind of current executives that sort of oversees the whole thing for those current executives. Were you, which one were you? Well, you know, I think a good current executive is you're the conduit between the show and the network and all the elements of the network. So PR, you know, development, current, um, finance, uh, production, programming, scheduling, et cetera. And you're really just providing the communication and navigating that for both sides so that everything gets taken care of. To me, you know, the first kind that you mentioned that feels compelled that they're going to give the note that's going to save the script. I've never been a believer in that. I mean, I'm a believer in you hire talent to do their jobs. And if they do it well, you never have to go down to the set. If they do it poorly, even if you went down to the set all the time, it's still going to suck. I wonder how many current executives are on The Simpsons. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> zero. Probably. Anyway, now I said zero, and there's probably somebody saying, no, I am there every day. <laughs> Mad Groening believes in me and takes all my notes. Anyway, so uh, you get the ABC, uh, you're, you're head of drama um, development, and then there's the announcement that Disney has purchased <laughs> ABC and the production company. Now, this this was a fascinating time, and for those of you who are listening who weren't really paying attention during that time, this was mind-boggling to me because just one day, this is before really, um, I'd say before the internet really took off, and all you had here in town were the trades. 
you had your Hollywood reporter and you had your uh, variety and that's what you had. And they came and you got to the office. And even if you got to the office at seven in the morning, they were there and you would sit at your desk with your coffee or tea and read them and, uh, and with, with your muffin or whatever. And this was an amazing day because I can't imagine in our day and age, because a negotiation for just, just think of your doing a negotiation for your contract at one of your jobs. At the least amount of time, it takes three months to do. And somebody finds out about it, no matter what. This Disney-ABC merger, it's like the announcement was on the front page of the trades, and, and not one person leaked it. Not one person knew. And it, it couldn't have been three months. It had to have been going on like a year. Oh, at least a year. How I... is it possible that not one person in the process leaked it to the press it's just such a different time i mean i don't think the press was as focused on entertainment in those days in the same way that they are now where you know gossip columns have become the absolute go-to for every kind of news i mean it's amazing to me you know and and at that point also the interesting thing was you know all the stories were about them buying abc when in fact they bought abc and espn and espn has turned out to be by far the much better purchase. I mean, by 25 fold at least. So you're there, you're the, you're the guy, uh, development of drama. What happens when ABC, cause normally when somebody takes over, this is another thing that happens if you're an executive, that's when you can really tell when in any company in the world, if somebody takes over, they normally clear the decks of a lot of executives, just clear the decks. But if you want to find out who the really great, extraordinary executives are in your business, find the company that cleared the decks and then look and see who's still there from the original <laughs> group. That, And that's the person that you got to look at and say they're doing something special. And every company there is in this town or everywhere has one that's like that. Like, even, even though it's like head of casting and things like that, Gene Blythe at Disney and ABC was a guy he'd been through like literally like 10 regimes completely. And he still was there because he was a guy that you knew he made you feel safe. And you knew that if he told you that this guy is the guy, even if you're the president and you're thinking, cause when just for you actors who are listening, when you're going on a test for a show, what happens is you're testing and you're in that room. And if you were testing during the days of ABC dramas or comedy and Steve was there, he was in that room. And what happens when you leave that room, every studio executive, every young development executive, every casting director, when you leave that room and the door closes, they all turn around to Steve like it's EF Hutton <laughs> and they ask his opinion. But I will bet that when Gene Blythe was in the room with you and he asked your opinion, Gene Blythe had an opinion and it was a very valuable opinion. Well, you know, Gene would sit right next to me. I'd make him sit right next to me in those <laughs> things because, no, absolutely. That process, by the way, is completely antiquated and broken because you're sitting there in this awkward room <laughs> with a bunch of executives. It's cold. It's, you know, it, 
you can't really you can't be funny you can't really be dramatic you know they should go to screen tests much more but no the door would close and i would turn to gene get his take on you know all the people we'd seen maybe get a take of a few more people you know usually if the showrunners are there get their take and who their favorites were and you know most of the time everybody agreed there were there were definitely times when you know it, it, there were there are those famous times where you know there's three people who come in and one is obviously just terrible they're like you know <laughs> Barry's not the guy you know and then the door closes and you go so what do you guys think well Barry he's we love Barry <laughs> you know and like everyone's like really that's you know but most of the time it's good but Gene Blythe I mean that's a great example of a guy who just you know did his job there was there was nothing Hollywood about Gene, all about relationships, all about the the talent and and he loved the talent. He loved actors and he loved that whole medium and just one of the great guys. I talked to him recently. You know, he's he has a horse farm out in deep in the valley. You were one of those guys that people. It didn't matter, even if the prevailing factor was for Gene. Oh God, you know he was aligned with those guys. <sighs> I, I, maybe there's somebody who's equal to him, but when you can't find somebody that's the equal, you're like, fuck it. You know, I'm going this way. And that's what people always did with you. And so, so you, the change happened. A lot of people got their walking papers. Yeah. A lot of people got their walking but papers. But you didn't. Why? I didn't. It, I, you know, they were still trying to figure out what they were going to do with the production company. And honestly, in the end, it, it never really worked out for ABC Productions. They ended up kind of taking the whole thing down, um, and I moved on to NBC at that point. But, you know, in those days, nobody, you know, there were not in-house studios. That was the first of its kind. And so, you know, Disney buying a network was the first crazy conglomerate where you had, oh, wait a second, you've got a studio owning a network. What's that going to be? And so I think, you know, there was a comfort level in the, in the fact I had, done my so-called life and the commish, which, you know, was on for many years. And so I think they felt like, okay, you know, for right now, he's a great placeholder. And then, you know, we'll see how this works out. And in the end, as I say, they ended up uh, shutting the whole thing down. Um, Brian McAndrews, I remember, was the head of it uh, when they shut it down. And he's now the CEO of uh, Pandora. That's right. All right. So then you go to NBC for how long? Uh, I was at NBC for about, uh, about, four years what happens there that was like a golden ride at at, at nbc you know because it was the it was when nbc had been down and then you know warren and um warren littlefield warren, sorry warren littlefield and uh and his team at you know that i became a part of uh literally you know was one hit after another it was er friends seinfeld um will and grace um and news radio all that stuff um third rock from the sun. Uh, and they were, you know, they went from, from fourth place to first place, um, kind of overnight and then stayed there, uh, for almost the entire time I was there. That'll be a familiar tune that we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> and so you're aligned with that and you're, you know, show me who you're with and I'll show you who I am. So yeah. you're like a winner. And yeah, it was, and it was such a great, time I mean, there was such an energy around tv at that point because you know it was like the the friends cast was on the cover of, of rolling stone and um you know third rock was winning all these emmys and 
ER, you know, was unstoppable in the ratings. And it was just a really fun time to be around a network that was clicking on all cylinders. And what was your highest position there? And who was uh, in, in terms of that? My highest position there was, uh, I think I was a senior vice president. Um, uh, in at, at that point, they decided to combine current and development so that you would cover a show as a current executive that you had been a part of developing. Um, so like, I covered Just Shoot Me, which, you know, talk about relationships, ends up being Steve Levitan. Um, we developed that with him and Brillstein Gray, and then years later, uh, you know, end up working on Modern Family. With relationships. Them. Completely. It's huge. So how do you get back to ABC and Disney? Um, I ended up um, when, uh, when the, they, they made a big change. Uh, Joe Roth made a big change over at Disney um, before they had merged Disney was still a separate unit that ABC um, and there was Touchstone Television, Walt Disney Network Television and Buena Vista Productions. And they were these three television studios that were all housed under Joe and they were all kind of doing disparate things. And he hired Lloyd Braun to come in and bring them all together into Touchstone Television. Uh, and Lloyd kind of cleaned house over there. And I came in uh, to under Lloyd as his number two to, you know, make that, that three some into one studio. And again, these are, these are fascinating uh, conversations that are going to happen uh, now <laughs> about this because it's a great thing, you know, when you bring, when you're number one and you bring in a number two, it's a, it's an amazing situation when you do it, but there is risks when you do that. Uh, and, how your relationships are and how people with nicer suits and bigger offices and board members and things like that and how they evaluate the performance of the people involved in those situations. Oh, completely. So you're the number two guy. Take me through what starts happening and you eventually become uh, a co, I believe co, uh, president or something with Lloyd uh at no I never was co with Lloyd so it was pretty Lloyd and I spent like three years where I was his number two and frankly the first year I think we had like 14 pilots and nothing went it was like and the ABC worst. was at what level what number of the four big four they were they were in the middle. They were going from second to third. They were by. They definitely weren't the fourth network, but you know they had the end of home improvement. So fourteen pilots, nothing. Zippo. Basically, we got like one like you know charity mid-season pickup, I believe. So basically, you got one more thing on the air than a dead guy. Yes, exactly. Again, yeah. again, this is what's so this is what's so fascinating yeah. about sitting across from yeah. you. Up to this point, you're not exactly, it could be argued that you're not exactly, you know, Hank Aaron. Right. But people love you. You're brilliant. You have a way with talent. You have a way with executives. Something tells them you have a way with the navigation. And sometimes people who get a little more lucky and get a little more things going get the shit kicked out of them in favor of people who are great with relationships. And I think all you needed, and you knew in your mind that all you needed was the right opportunity. And once you got the right opportunity, 
you would have hit after hit. You knew that in your mind, correct? Yeah, I felt it by gut. I mean, you know, you, you want to get into that position where your decisions are really impactful. Now, not that you want to admit to this, but we <laughs> talked about this a little earlier. But again, what is hard to understand when you're at the top of the heap or wherever you are is that the people underneath you, they have goals for themselves. And sitting across from Steve McPherson, my feeling is that his goal in life was not to be number two to anybody. <laughs> Definitely. I'm a competitive guy, and I so think his, you always want to be number one. You always want to be the decision maker. So you're, so you're there, and you, you know, you're brought in by people who bring you in to be the number two person. And they know if they're smart and they know the way the world works, they're bringing you in knowing that you want to be number one but they're number one. Right. And well, so it's and a also, weird thing. I'm also, you know, I'm a very straight shooter. I'm, you know, I'm not very Hollywood. I'm not very politic. Yeah, but you didn't walk in and sit down the, with Lloyd Braun and Stu Bloomberg and say, hey, guys, uh, listen, before I sign the paperwork here, I just want to let you know that uh, I'm going to be, I want your job. And then uh, I just want you to know that. And it's going to happen. I'm right. going to have your job. No, I never had that conversation. So, no, of course you didn't. <laughs> because, you know, it doesn't matter how non-Hollywood you are. Because if you had that conversation, you're not getting the gig. <laughs> right, right. Unless they're completely confident in what they do. You know, if you have that, if you're LeBron James and a new basketball player comes on, right. and he says, hey, I'm going to be taking your spot. You're like, okay, nice talking to you. <laughs> um, you know, Royce Clayton, yeah. who was the, uh, said when he was a young child that he was going to take over Ozzie Smith's position in St. Louis. And he did. That's, um, that's so, cool. but, but it's very rare. Yeah. Anyway. So take me through that, that transition there. Well, uh, it's interesting because again, it's an ironic transition that the, the first show that I did that I can really put my finger on that had impact was CSI. And uh, we developed it with Jerry Bruckheimer and Jonathan Littman at the time, who nobody who knew who Jonathan Littman was, except I had worked with him as a current executive at Fox, again, relationships. And he had this show, the CAA found this guy, Anthony Zyker, unknown out of Vegas, had written one pilot script, I think, a feature maybe. Um, they brought him in to pitch to me. And I don't know if you've ever met Anthony, but he's the most dynamic pitcher there is. I mean, can't sit down. He gets up. He's does the thing. And I'm like, this is going to be fantastic. Cause Bruckheimer actually at that point had, had been killing it in features, but had no TV. Um, and he had hired, uh, Jonathan to get TV going and it wasn't kind of clicking. And they came in with Anthony Zyker and I'm like, this guy's amazing. This is going to be just an awesome show. We take it into ABC pass. <laughs> and we, we walked out and, and I mean, CAA will, will back me up on this. I was so pissed that they had passed on this because we were their in-house studio. And there was this, there was this unfortunate kind of rivalry between the two, I think still in those days. And that exists today. At a and lot the executives of the past were Lloyd and Stu. Lloyd, Stu. Um, and uh, you know, it was Tom Sherman, who's a great guy mm -hmm. over at CW. Now, Jamie Tarsus was under uh, mm -hmm. them. It was before she had exited. But she wasn't there. the decision maker. They, those two were the decision makers. Yeah. 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 And so now, uh, again, just so our audience knows, the landscape is littered with shows that have been passed on that have been, you know, NBC passed on Roseanne. ABC did Roseanne. ABC passed on Cosby. NBC did Cosby. Exactly. And Steve, if he shares with it before the end of this podcast, 
uh, will probably tell you in the biggest disappointment section of a show probably that he passed on that became a juggernaut hit. So Completely. Was it there was Zanuck or one of the huge famous guys said, if I had passed on everything I picked up on picked up and picked up everything I passed on, I would have done about the same. <laughs> <laughs> and I always love that because it's true. I mean, you know, you do your best, but But they knows? probably passed on that project because again, there's somebody pitching it who's never done anything in his yeah. life. Yeah. He had, he, unknown. Bruckheimer had not really been successful in TV. And so it was, it was definitely a risk. And, you know, I can say if I was on the other side, maybe I would have passed too, but, um, we took it over to CBS and you know, the rest is history. It became probably the biggest franchise in television history. And who were the executives who bought it at CBS? That was less involved at the time. Yeah. Less and, and Nina Tassler. Nina Tassler. Yeah. Who's still there. You know, I mean, Les is fantastic with relationships. I mean, you look at the team that he has and the people, there's there's a continuity. He stays with them. He's loyal. They're loyal. It's an amazing, amazing company uh, because no, of Les. No, no doubt because of the consistency yeah. and, again, relationships. So, But the big thing on CSI was not only did it go to CBS, but then the powers that be, Bob Iger at, uh, at Disney, started saying, well, Jerry Bruckheimer is going to run over budget and it's a show for another network and we shouldn't do this. And so Lloyd in one meeting trying, I think, to just kind of rattle everyone said, let's just give it away. Not expecting that they really would. And they did. And they gave their 50% away to Atlantic Alliance. Oh. Um, and Atlantic Alliance, you know, sold a few years ago for billions of dollars. And 99% of that was CSI. So not only had they passed on the show, but then they gave away ownership of it. And so what the irony is then, so there I am, right? And I'm like, I'm somewhat, I can put my finger on this giant hit, but it's like the bane of their existence because it's now <laughs> going on to kill their network ratings wise and to make billions of dollars for other people that they could have had 50% of. Um, and so it was kind of a, it was a, it was a weird time. Will you explain to our audience what happens in the hallways of any company when opportunity is there? You're in a situation where it's all there for you. There's the, there's, it's, it's on a silver platter, and you made a decision as a company to not only let the show go, but to let your interest in it go. How do these executives walk through the hallway the minute CSI goes to number one in the ratings? How do they, are there conversations? Do people talk or do their heads just down or do they get, like, how do people morale-wise deal with that? You know what? For, for me and my team, it was devastating, you know, um, because you work so hard to, you know, find this needle in a haystack. And when you do, it's an unbelievable thing. Honestly, though, <laughs> I think if you look at a lot of great executives, uh, they're Teflon. They somehow have a way of navigating through all this stuff. And for years, you know, the strap planning department at Disney would tell me that, no, it was still a good decision that, you know, CSI was, you know, it was good that we gave it away. And, you know, the deficit was too high. I mean, people, people, you know, it, this is Hollywood. You know, if there's a success, everybody stands up. And if there's a huge failure or a giant mistake like that, people, they walk away and they point fingers and, and that's really what happened. 
And so we hear that's fascinating is the foundation of your beginnings. The first thing that you identify that really is a huge success is something that you don't get to be any part of. It, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, it was, it was really a tough thing. But you know what happens then? That next thing you bring in, they listen. Yeah. No, you know, it, it definitely, it helps with that. Um, but surprisingly enough, the next thing that I brought in almost immediately after that was Amazing Race, which they also passed on, but they kept ownership in at least. So we put it on CBS and, you know, it's still on the air today, but, but they kept ownership. At least they didn't give away the ownership the way they did with the... Uh, and who was CSA. the reality executive in charge at ABC at that particular time that passed on Amazing Race? I don't even know. It's still Lloyd was the decision maker, you know, so... So these things uh, take their toll. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It, it was a, it, that was really a, a, it was a lesson, I guess. And it was just like trial by fire. Um, but it was unbelievably frustrating for me. So how do you move up? You know, how I, do you get to be the president and chairman? It was really that when, that, when all these things aren't going your way, you know, I credit two people with that. Um, one is Michael Eisner who, um, you know, took a liking to me. Um, you know, Michael, uh, you know, even with the CSI situation, Michael looked at that as a, my strength because he heard me in meetings say we shouldn't give this up. And then they did. And, you know, for him, yes, that was a big thing, but he's got bigger fish to fry. He really took a liking to me and was very supportive of me at the studio and, and, and what I was trying to do. Um, and when, um, when I ended up, um, well, then, what happened was they were going to make a big change at ABC. They fired the executives there. At that point, Stu was already gone. They fired Lloyd and uh, Susan Line, and they were looking for a new person. And, and I'd been passed over many times for that gig because I didn't really get along with Lloyd. Um, and, you know, I, I was, again, I was not the kind of Teflon guy was, you know, said what I, I felt and that rubbed people the wrong way sometimes. And normally they bring people in from the outside, somebody who's successful in another company. You don't want the guy in your company normally who's seen all these defeats and bone crushing yeah. situations. But of course your relationships <laughs> and the way you navigated. No. And, and there was a guy named Alex Wallow who was there. Um, he was, uh, actually president of the network. Um, at the time, and they actually replaced him at the same time too. He, although he stayed on, they replaced him with Ann Sweeney. Um, but he was really instrumental, um, in talking with Michael and Bob, uh, at that point, uh, and saying I was the best guy for the job and that they should, you know, take a shot on me. And, and they ended up doing it like three weeks before upfronts that year. And you had to go to upfronts and make the speech. And for those of you who don't know what the upfronts, these are these happen um, during May when all the pilots and are picked up and for series and you invite and wine and dine all the people who are the sponsors and all the people who spend the money on the advertising and you need to give a presentation to convince them why they should spend money with your network and how you're on the rise and how all your shows are the you have to pretend sometimes that things are better than they are. It's all on the come and you're showing them these trailers that, you know, you don't know that whether the show is good or bad and you have to do it. I mean, I was fortunate because I had started developing, um, desperate housewives and lost 
and Grey's Anatomy at the studio. So then I became the president of the network and, you know, picked those shows up. And for that first, so three weeks later, season. those were the ones that were going on the air. Those were, yes, there were other ones, but, but Lost, um, Lost, Desperate Housewives were on the fall schedule. And then we put uh, Grey's Anatomy on the mid-season because it needed some work and the pilot needed to be redone. Got it. So tell me about, now this is something that I want to talk about with ESPN because this is like, was always, I remember like I was an avid ESPN watcher. And that year that those shows were picked up, I don't know what year it was. I think it was 2004 maybe or 2005. It would have been 2004, yeah. So I'm watching ESPN, trying to get my sports fix. Every 10 minutes, there's a commercial for Desperate Housewives. Four women on my male-dominated sports network. <laughs> right. And I actually said to myself, this is how wrong I am about things. I said to myself, man, are these guys functionally out of it i mean like why would they advertise for women on a sports network for a show like this this is nothing that would if they're going to spend their advertising dollars why don't they do it someplace else i know they own espn but nobody's watching this is going to watch that and sure enough september rolls around the first airing of Desperate Housewives comes on. and It was a number one show out of the gate, which, I, you know, as rarely happens, and it was amazing. You know, it, sports are interesting because, you know, there's – I had Monday Night Football on the air when I first started. Do you remember we shot uh, the, the Nicolette Sheridan ad where she dropped the towel in front of uh, Tyrell Owens, I think. That's right. And, uh, you know, so we were doing a little bit to that, but – Listen, women control the remote control in 95% of the households, and a lot of women watch sports. I'm sure some of that marketing was wasted uh, on those, but but the you know overall power of ESPN and its audience is pretty pretty amazing. So it certainly helped us in that launch. It was great synergy. So the network really isn't doing that well. They don't. Their biggest comedy hit at the time you took over is what? Uh, my wife and kids. I had developed uh, at. At the studio. Just Damon and Wayans and Don Rio and David Himmelfarb. Exactly. David Himmelfarb was my boss with Pete Aronson at Witt Thomas. And the biggest drama hit on ABC at the time was what? The practice, I think. The practice. Yeah. yeah. So here you are. You just take over. It's three weeks in. And then you got the summer to advertise these things. And everybody's launching their stuff. And you roll out. And you have two shows that are hits. Yeah, it was... It was crazy. I mean, I, I remember I, I was on the treadmill in the morning because I just had to run off my anxiety. And Jeff Bader <laughs> called me um, and he said, and I was like, Oy, why is he calling so early? And he said, you have the number one show in America. And I was like, holy shit. And then we and then Lost premiered. And then, you know, those two shows really were the beginning of the pendulum, you know, swinging. Um, and then Grey's Anatomy came midseason. Um, and it, it ended up being bigger than Desperate Housewives eventually. And to have as a network president, in this day and age, if you can just have one show that's oh, a huge absolutely. hit, your job is secure normally. <laughs> Previously, people like Kevin Riley actually had five or six shows 
that were top 20 shows and he still got the shit kicked out of him right. at NBC and and sent packing but normally if you could just get one thing going in a network that wasn't doing that well you'd be you'd be great you had like three new things happen. you must have been walking through the hallways like people must have been making it rain as you uh, with dollar bills just throwing it, them out at you saying hey this is the king this is what it was pretty fantastic and also you know that summer we aired six episodes of a little show called Dancing with the Stars, which everyone thought was like crazy. And then what happened is that went on in the summer. Then in the fall, we had Desperate and Lost launch. And then mid-season, we had Grays, and we brought back dancing for its first in-season cycle in the spring. So that year was pretty incredible. So you have four top 10 shows. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Under your roof. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. We were flying high. How long before you went into the boss's office and asked for a raise? <laughs> you know, I you know, I honestly never did and You and never asked for a raise. No, I didn't. And I honestly to this day, I like I should have just at that point just leveraged them and said, like, I'm walking out the door unless you do this. But no, it was it was actually a terrible time. I mean, Disney, you know, everything you've heard about them is true. I mean they're just it is not a good place to work it is you know they literally tried to screw me on my bonuses because they gave me these they gave me these contractual things that they thought well no one is ever going to hit those so you know it was like if you get a number one show we'll give you a million bucks and it was like you're never going to get a number one show well year one we had the number one show we had the number two show then they were like if you're you know if you're first in 18 to 49 we'll give you another five hundred thousand dollars that's never gonna happen their fourth boom i was there and they literally then they came back and said said well that is he doesn't get credit for monday night football but the other networks get credit for their sports programming so that they could try to not pay me the bonus why don't you hire Marty Singer to help you get it? Yeah, I hired Marty Singer when I left, and he did, <laughs> he did, he did very well. Of course he did. He did very did. well by me. Marty's yeah. going to be coming on the yeah. show. You'll yeah. have to authorize him yeah. to talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, Marty Singer, by the way, is probably the greatest litigation attorney in the world. And uh, whenever you're in a situation where you're in trouble, you pray that the other side hasn't hired him first. Yeah, that's right. So... It's going great. Things are amazing. Tell me what happens where things where you're walking through the hallways and you don't have a bounce in your step as much anymore. And you're sort of noticing that, God, you know, I'm doing great here. I'm like, I feel like Wes Welker on the Patriots. I'm, you know, I'm doing better than everybody else, but my team doesn't seem to want to really back me. It wasn't my team. I have a I had an amazing team, but, you know, it's no industry secret that, you know, uh, myself and Ann Sweeney did not see eye to eye from the get-go. It was a forced marriage from the beginning. She didn't hire me. They replaced both, they, we, they put both me and her into the job at the same time. And it was like, we'd like to, you guys to meet and you're going to now work for each other. And, and, and we never got along. We never saw eye to eye. And I, and I knew it wasn't going to work out. And, and, you know, the other thing, and I, I fault myself, you know, I'm not a good upward manager. I'm not political, you know, so I threw I threw gasoline on that fire regularly. It's impossible to get through this journey that you're talking about without being that person. You had four number one, their top 10 shows. So you were thinking to yourself, hey, 
they can't fuck with me. I mean, I'm. Uh, yeah, yeah. You start feeling your oats a little bit. Give and... me an example of something you could tell our audience that you did that was self-destructive. Oh, just you know, just emails or in meetings, you know, saying things that you know you shouldn't say. I mean, Disney is a very locked down PR company. You know, everybody should smile. It's the happiest place on earth. Never say a bad word about anybody. And I would just say, you know, things that I felt compelled to say. Like when my friend Kevin Riley got fired and he'd been skiing with Ben Silverman the week before and Ben was negotiating for his job at that time, I went up to press tour and they asked me what I thought about it. And I thought, I said, I think it sucks. I think Ben should at least say what, what happened and, and he'll be a man about it. Disney hated that. And, you know, they were like, you know, they, they called Ben and apologized to Ben. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, it's nothing about Ben as a, an executive. I mean, God bless him. The guy built a company and sold it for millions of dollars. But it was a, it was a character issue for me. And, you know, I'm always going to defend a friend. That said, in those jobs, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just smile and say, I wish everyone luck and everything's going to be great. This is what's so crazy. And what I was talking about earlier is like you can be in a position, you can be doing well or there can... And there's always forces working behind the scenes that you have to think or have, you have to, in any job you're in, even if you don't believe it, you have, you can't trust anybody. And it's a situation where Ben Silverman was a guy who always successful. I mean, the guy, it could be argued every place he went, he printed money. He didn't need money. He didn't need more power. He didn't need, and he wasn't a guy that you would meet and you would say, hey, this guy's drunk with power. And he would just be so much fun to be around sometimes. You couldn't even imagine that he wouldn't just say to Kevin, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is happening. And you, you couldn't believe that that happened. So that when you did speak out, it was. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, that was just an example of the kind of thing I think in those positions as head of a network. You, people don't want you to say what you think and you know they want you to be more political and you know again it's my fault i'm not that guy so tell me when you realize that uh my days are are numbered here no matter how great a job i've done no matter how many emmy awards these shows have won no matter how much of these things i've had my fingerprints on it doesn't matter they're going to they're going to take me down here. You know, probably about three to four years in. Um, that early? Yeah. I mean, I, I really, because cause it was a combination of, I don't think this is going to work out because this is a horrible relationship with my boss and, and the, this company, I'm not a good fit for the company. And I really didn't like the job. I really, it was, you know, the money, the power was great, but it wasn't one of those things where I was like, boy, I aspire to be doing the upfront and, you know, dealing with finance and strap planning and PR. That was not what I enjoyed about this business. I got out of the wall street stuff because I didn't want to be a money guy. Um, and you know, now these networks are so much about share price and stock and, and what's going on, you know, in the market. And they're, they're not the same kind of creative engines I think they were back in the Brandon Tartikoff days where, you know, you had a you have visionary leader calling the shots on creative things. I don't think he was worried about the GE stock price, you know, just wasn't the way it was. So I think that I, I knew I wasn't long for it. Um, 
pretty early on. Um, and then it just got worse and worse. Take us through that day when you found out that it was over. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I had gotten back from vacation and, uh, you know, in typical Disney fashion, um, I got a call. <laughs> I got a call from Anne that I was fired. Um, and uh, I've never seen her or Bob since. Uh, Bob I ran Iger. A, I ran into Bob Iger like in a, at a deli once or something. But, um, but yeah, I got a call. And then... Uh, when, when somebody makes a call like that at that <laughs> yeah. level, how does the call start off? Or does it just like, hello? It's very, it's, it's very brief. It's very brief. And then I, you know, And how do you respond I, when she says that? Or do you just hang up the phone? You just go, thank you, click, and you call go, Marty Singer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, I love this town. <laughs> and so, and, you know, normally in a corporate situation, when you get that call, it's, 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 this is what surprises me about it. Normally in a corporate situation, what has to happen is they call you to a meeting and you sit down with Anne and there's a human resources person right. there in the room. So they had a human resource person on the line. On the line. On the phone, which was really nice of them. But you, but, but the thing is, is they don't want you back in your office. They don't want you to take anything. They don't yeah. want you to... But so... When when you hang up the phone and you go on your emails, do you realize your email's been shut off? You know, it was interesting. I I knew they would shut it off, but they didn't shut it off for a little while, you know, which is interesting. But, you know, listen, they packed up my office and sent it home, and, you know, it was all fine. And, uh, you know, I, I literally, when I told my wife that I had uh, been shit-canned, she was like, hallelujah, because she just hated the job. She hated what it did to me, and, you know, um, we had young kids and still do, and it was it was a godsend, honestly. It certainly is because now with your new company, uh, you've got like 20 different things in development. But this is what's odd, Steve. <laughs> you get out. You get out of this, the, the fucking depths of hell and taking meetings with these people who you know are looking at you and are like, Ugh, dirty, <laughs> rotten world. <laughs> And you're going back into these rooms and pitching people where you don't have control. You had control at the top. You could say, we're doing this show. We're not doing this show. Now you're walking in and sitting across from the Ann Sweeney's of the world and saying, basically what you're saying is when you're pitching, you're not pitching a show. All you're saying is this. It's all disguised in this hieroglyphics. And if you, and if you, untangle the web of what it means you're looking at them and you're saying give me your fucking money give me your money and let us make this pilot <laughs> and you're doing that and you're going in these rooms and you're being successful but why do you want to do that again well it's interesting first of all you know i took literally four years off um i ended up doing the iron man triathlon I had started the winery actually that you mentioned in the beginning um, in uh, 04 when I got the network uh, job. So that I just did more of. I launched a moonshine, uh, an American whiskey, you know, clear corn whiskey. And then I, I ended up also buying a piece of this network called Baby First TV, which is this amazing uh, kind of uh, baby Einstein like programming for kids zero to four. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's been a great experience is still working with them on their board and stuff. And I really considered not coming back at all. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that 
you know, got a little cushion. It, people jump right back in. And, and I really just looked at, was there anything that I really missed? And the thing that I missed was the creative camaraderie, you know, sitting on a couch with people like you, people, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera and working with those people. And granted, being a buyer, as you say, is a much easier job. Yes, no. But being a seller, the nice thing is you don't have to do anything you don't really want to do. You know, I don't work with anybody that I don't like. I don't work on projects that I'm not passionate about. I limit the amount of stuff that I do. You know, all it takes is one. It's like you can pitch to every, you know, if you have a project that's more mainstream that could go to a lot of places with a little bit of adjustments here and there, because every network wants to know that the show you're bringing can only be done at their network. So you can make little adjustments here and there. But the bottom line is if you pitch to 10 places, you can fail nine times and all you need is one. That's also really good odds. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, there's, you know, the creative process of making a pilot, even if it doesn't go, there's a really creative aspect to that that's satisfying and fulfilling. It's what I missed when I was on Wall Street, where you're not making anything. I mean, you know, I love my so-called life. Yeah, I'm proud to have been a tiny part of it. It was a failed show, quote unquote. I mean, it was canceled after, you know, very limited run. Um, You know, by today's standards, it was doing unbelievable ratings, but that was a different time. But I love things that I was a part of. Ben Stiller show, you know, again, canceled, then wins the Emmy. But working with those people, working on a project that you can be proud of, that's what I missed. And so that's really why, you know, I started Wonder Monkey. You asked, by the way, it was called McPherson Productions until my daughters heard that it was called McPherson Productions. And they said, Nick say on that. And they named it Wonder Monkey. And so you do this. And I imagine the first thing you do, because you're, you're, you're a non-writing executive producer, right. similar to Eric Tannenbaum, who's been on the show, who uh, is the executive producer of Two and a Half Men. Uh, another juggernaut. Yeah, great so, guy. And he's a great guy, an amazing guy. And so when you're a non-writing executive producer and you go out, you have to justify your importance to a project because you're not writing anything, you're not starring in anything, and you're presenting the role of sort of, again, almost like the highest level current executive. Yeah, to some extent. So you're sort of pulling on those talents that you have to get things going in the relationships because, you know, people want to do a deal with you for a show because of your relationships. And they perceive that, Hey, I I'll give up, I'll give up money because this guy gives me a better chance to get my show on the air. And, uh, and that's what happened. So tell me a few of the relationships from the past that you tapped into for your uh, shows that you're going out with this year? You, you know, I think it's what you're, you're absolutely right. Just to touch a little bit on the non-writing exec producer. I think, you know, what you bring to the table is whatever your skill set is, you know? And so my skill set is one as a packager. It's, it's identifying material, whether that's the underlying rights to a book, a format for a TV show, a character, an actual live personality, what it may be. And then, finding the right people to actually do the show, whether that's director, writer, et cetera. And so I've tapped into a number of my relationships, you know, David Goyer, uh, who I did uh, flash forward with, um, and I are working together, Mitch Hurwitz, who started at back at, um, at with Thomas with me, albeit a little bit ahead of me, 
uh, we're working together. Rod Lurie uh, and I are working together. Um, and then, you know, and then it's been fun discovering some new talent. I worked with this great playwright, uh, Kate Thurston, at Juilliard this year, um, and that was just really fun. Ricky Blit and I uh, uh, have a pilot, and Johnny Galecki, who I just met through this process, has been great. He, uh, Ricky and I did a show at ABC together. Um, you know, so it, you, you end up going back to the people that not only do you know, but you know are talented, you trust, and you like. And in different cases, you know, Mitch, I've brought him to properties that he really likes. Um, David Goyer, same thing. Um, you know, other people will bring you things that you like because you can help, because I have relationships to get in uh, at the right level, decision-making level at networks, um, you know, and I'll have some good influence about what other elements I might need to package in to make that, you know, work. Because when you walk into that room, they are programmed to say no, and you got to give them every reason to say yes. And that's really, I look at my skill set as packager to put, you know, the best elements together to make it undeniable so they can't say no. One of my favorite words, undeniable. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you to tell me a great story, holy shit story or something that's in your <laughs> brain. I'm going to just say something and just tell me something that comes into your brain All as right, far I'll as try. a story or something that some holy shit moments that people wouldn't really believe or perceive to right. these things. Uh, it could be a name or a show. Right. J.J. Uh, Abrams. J.J. Uh, Abrams, I mean, probably the, the most uh, holy shit moment was when, you know, they gave uh, us the script to Lost. And frankly, I was not uh, a fan of the concept. I was like, we got GPS today. We'll find the damn plane. You know, ironic given today in Malaysia. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, but when we got the script, you know, him and Damon had written an extraordinary piece. But Jack died in the pilot. Uh, and I was like, I love this thing, but you're killing like the most interesting like part of this show. And they were like, yeah, we wanted to do something different and take the audience by surprise. And I was like, you know, if you want to kill him, like you kill him in like season two and shock it, but let's keep him. And, you know, the, they ended up just saying yes uh, after one call. And, you know, the rest is history. And Matt Fox, you know, went on to be such a dynamic and central part of the success of that show. Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher. You know, Terry is just, you know, we, it's interesting. Gene Blythe and I had a deal with Terry because Gene, to his credit, said, I think she's got another show in her. And then I got the script for Desperate Housewives. And, um, and we thought, man, she could be great for this. And um, she actually uh, came in to read for it. And she read for it. She read for it. And when she read for it, not only did she get the part, but like it actually showed how exciting that piece could be. Um, cause it was both the, her reinvention and, you know, it, it was, it was 40 year old women. Most people are like, Oh, come on. You can't do older women. You can't do just women. You can't do women in the suburbs, but you know, it was a magical piece and she was fantastic at the center of it. Monk. Monk. You know, Monk is another one of those shows that you feel happy that you were involved in, but it ended up going away from us because <laughs> ABC passed. And uh, David Hoberman, who's a dear friend of mine, um, I gave him his first TV deal, um, again, relationships. And Monk was one of the first really interesting things we, we developed with Andy Breckman. And we loved that piece. And uh, I could never get it going at the studio. 
And finally, he ended up getting it going at US, uh, USA with uh, Jackie over there. And, um, and, and it was just an amazing, amazing you know, thing to see how this little idea that Andy Breckman had, who had not really done any primetime television at that point, um, could become, you know, Tony Shalhoub, Emmy after Emmy, and be really, I think, the driver of the beginning of USA in terms of establishing themselves as a character network. Grey's Anatomy. Uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy, what an amazing ride. I mean, the fact that it's still on the air is just extraordinary. Um, I, I, there's two things I remember about Grey's Anatomy. One is that the pilot was um, flawed, um, but showed tremendous potential. Why was it flawed? It was, you know, tonally, it didn't quite work. It was a little bit too kind of, um, uh, it took itself a little too seriously. It was a little bit uh, pedantic, and it just, it, the, the, the feel of it was not the Grey's Anatomy that we know now, this kind of upbeat soap that, you know, really captivated people and had its serious moments with the, with the uh, hospital stuff, but also had a levity that was not familiar for stuff. And we reshot almost the entire pilot and, you know, bless Shonda and Betsy's heart. They, they embraced it and redid it and, you know, and created that amazing thing. The second time I remember is I took Shonda uh, Rhimes and Betsy Bournes to, uh, and the cast to dinner at the Palm uh, about three weeks before we aired the episode after the Super Bowl. And I said to all of them, your lives are going to change. Um, and, you know, and it was, you know, overnight, um, not only did their lives change, but, you know, that was, <laughs> it, we had had no issues on the show, you know, at all until then. And when it exploded, you know, the pressure is gigantic and the spotlight is brighter than ever. And, um, you know, it, it obviously led to some issues and, um, but the show was, you know, still amazing. And Shonda is one of the most amazing writing talents I've ever had the privilege of working with. And one of the things that uh, our audience should know uh, as a network president, one of the most difficult things is, is when you believe in a show, you believe in the concept, you believe in the script, but what you don't believe in is that you made some errors in judgment in the casting process. And the people that delivered in the room when they got on the set no matter how many takes they had, they didn't deliver convincingly enough for you in the pilot. And then you yeah. have to go back and you have to replace people. It's one of the most horrific things as an actor, getting the call saying that, hey, um, they're going to recast you. And it's one of the most difficult things as a creator because you have to reshoot these scenes and fit them all in and make it right. Yeah. How many uh, roles were recast? Uh, in Grey's Anatomy, I think only a couple, n n nobody of the main kind of central cast. Um, it didn't come together in other ways, but there were, you know, there were always, I think there's a lot of baby out with the bathwater in Hollywood. I mean, there's so many pilots that have tremendous potential that literally if the pilot is just off or doesn't test well, you know, doesn't scream well, that it goes away and they throw out the concept and you never hear from it again. And I, I you know, I think when it shows the guts of an executive when, you know, uh, they can really dig in, believe in something, say, hey, listen, our execution wasn't there, but I believe in this thing. I'm going to spend some more money on it uh, and go forward. I think, you know, pay cable and, uh, you know, really set a tone with the limited development they do and betting 
you know, more on their horses. And now Netflix is really doing that. And you're seeing it pays off. It really pays off. Scrubs. Scrubs, you know, Bill Lawrence, one of the greatest showrunners and great guy. Um, you know, he came to me with that. Um, Ted Shervin, who uh, him, Ted and I used to play tennis together almost every day uh, over the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. I remember on Maple Drive. And, um, and we ended up making a deal with Bill, um, who had come off Spin City. And Scrubs was the first idea that Bill had. Um, and it was a little bit different because he wanted to do single camera. And that was before anybody was doing single camera. Um, and he wanted to have some drama within it. Uh, and, you know, he, he absolutely believed in it. We developed it, um, you know, for ABC to start. Uh, and they passed on the script eventually. Uh, and then NBC, uh, Carrie Burke over there picked it up. She believed in it. And we were looking for the lead and going through all the names that you've heard before. And this young guy, Zach Braff, came in. Uh, none of us had ever seen him before. Um, and he, you know... He, he got that moniker. He's a little like Raymond, you know, um, and, uh, you know, everyone has to they have to compare everybody to something they know so they can compare. But uh, he got the part and he was just dynamic. And, you know, and, and Bill shot the shot the pilot. And it was it was really uh, an amazing piece. And what was interesting about that piece is that it performed unbelievably well overseas because of the single camera nature of it. Um, before a lot of American comedies were doing that. And for our audience, you know, the nature of a single camera show is that there's normally no laugh track and it just shot like a film with one camera as opposed to like Everybody Loves Raymond that's shot in front of a live audience with four, sometimes five cameras, but mainly four, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, four. Yeah. Um, and the multicam like Raymond has been around since like I Love Lucy. The only difference with I Love Lucy, she didn't have an audience. They had a laugh track, I believe, when they yeah. did it. Uh, okay, let's talk about uh, the mother load. Steve Levitan, his partner in crime, <laughs> and Modern Family. You know, uh, Steve uh, and I had worked together on Just Shoot Me. Um, Chris Lloyd and I had never worked together, but were friendly. We had known each other. And then Jay Suris and I literally started in the business together. Jay Suris was an agent and, at UTA. And represented Steve at the point, and Bob Broder represented Chris Lloyd. Jay called me and said, I'm going out with this show. They're at 20th. Uh, so, you know, you need to know that right away. So 20th being the in-house studio of Fox. So I didn't know if I would get a, a fair shot at it. He said, I'm, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have breakfast at my house of bagels and everything. And Steve and Chris will pitch the show. And so sure enough, we went over uh, into the backyard uh, of Steve Levitan and they pitched the show and they had it all worked out on the computer. And they pitched the show the way the pilot plays out. So that's a surprise at the end that they're all one family comes. And I'll tell you, as they were pitching, we were like, wow, this is an interesting family show. It seems kind of nice. And then when they pitched that, we were like, wow, this could be really special. And they, they were much more focused on the documentary style of it. And they actually had a documentarian in the original pitch. And we, we were going to potentially put a documentarian in the show but it just when we saw the pilot, eventually it didn't need it, and it, it it played odd with it, and so that went away. But we we bought it that day, and and Jay delivered it to me uh, at ABC, and we were really fortunate. So that moment, you sort of buy it in the room, or as they say, uh, in this case, you bought it in the yard, uh, and but 
I'm sure Jay had meetings set up with the other network. I think they pitched everywhere. I mean, you know, that pitch basically went in two stages. They pitched to us, and then I pitched to them. Um, and, you know, in terms of saying, like, here's why you should be on ABC. You know, I think we understand marketing uh, at that point better than anybody. We had, you know, launched Desperate and, and Grace and Lost and, and really knew how to blow out shows. Um, Steve and I had a, a, a firsthand knowledge of each other and I think trusted each other. Um, and then, you know, uh, we really just spent time talking about um, we had a deal with Sofia Vergara at that point, and I thought she'd be perfect for one of the roles. I had had a deal with her for four years. Now, that's and, another thing that's interesting also is that, you know, Steve, you know, th these are people that you, you don't normally, they don't normally want to hear, hey, could you use this person that I have a deal with and burn off this deal that I'm paying? <laughs> right. They want to find their own people. How did, were, did when they met her, were they automatically in love with her, or was it a convincing factor? They they had gotten wind of her. Um, she had been on a, on the air. We had put her on the air in uh, um, Nights of Prosperity, um, and so she would always pop in whatever she was in. But we had never found the right material for her. So they knew her, and they were certainly open to it. They said, you know, I I think it, uh, if I remember correctly, they said, well, well, let's take a meeting with her. And I knew as soon as they took a meeting with her because she's the most you know, obviously she's unbelievably gorgeous, but she's also so down to earth and just captivating in a room. And so they took a meeting and it was like the rest is history, you know. But the casting on that show was really interesting because a lot of it fell into place at O'Neill, um, you know, even the, you know, some of the other roles. But Ty Burrell, Ty Burrell had done a pilot for us that was God awful. And he was God awful in it. And I think you'd probably admit it. And so they said, okay, you know, here's this great, we want Ty Burrell. And it was one of those rooms and we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so to their credit, they got a simple camera and they went into Levitan's backyard with Jason Weiner and they shot, uh, some single camera footage of Ty Burrell doing the scene where he shoots his son, um, with the pellet gun. And not only did we think Ty was amazing, but we thought, oh my God, you know, this is going to be something really special because we could see the way Jason was going to shoot it and how it would come together. For the actors listening, will you explain to our audience how it's possible <laughs> for an actor to completely be horrible in one project and be extraordinary in another? How, what, how can that happen? You know, it, his character, if I remember correctly, in the pilot that was terrible, he was like a bitter, he was the bitter gay partner of one of the central characters. And there was nothing funny about his character. There was nothing remotely about who Ty is as a person. I mean, I think, you know, he's certainly not exactly that character, but there's a lot of him that goes into it. There was nothing in the character that didn't work that would showcase any of his skills and his abilities. And that's what happens, unfortunately, is you get good actors in the wrong roles. And it can not only can it they don't shine, but it actually in this case, like we actually didn't think he was going to pop at all. And then, you know, sure enough, he does. Will you tell our audience about the testing process after you shoot pilots and you get them completed and then you. Could you, because this is something that our audience doesn't know, and it's a fascinating thing. And I, I before I finish off with the last uh, few questions, you're one of the few guys that could answer this to our audience, and it might take you five minutes, but whatever. <laughs> so, 
I want you to take our audience through when all the pilots are shot and they get sent into the network, all the comedies, all the dramas, and what happens from that point to the point when you decide we're going with this show, we're not going with that show. Okay. So, you know, all the pilots are picked up, with meaning they're going to shoot a pilot. And then when everything is turned in, you have screenings. And screenings, it varies at the networks. I did them with everybody who worked at the network because I felt like if you're working all year in legal, you know, you should see what you're working on and, and be able to voice your opinion, whether that be the final opinion or not. So we would screen for the whole company, and then they would be tested. These pilots would be tested. And I'm a huge proponent of getting rid of testing. I think it's the dumbest thing we do. I mean, it's it, there's probably nothing that annoys me more than Nielsen ratings, and it might be testing. <laughs> um, so, But you do test them, and they literally test the concept. They test each character. They measure them against each other. They measure the shows against each other. Um, Where are they tested? <laughs> they're tested usually uh, locally. They'll literally get like a room in the valley and they'll show it to, you know, 25 to 50 people and then they'll interview them after. And it, that process is so flawed because if you have the loudest person in the room happens to love it or hate it, it sways the whole room. The, the moderator has to be really skilled to not lead people one way or the other. Then you also do cable tests, which are a little more valid, I guess, where, you know, you, you get a group, a uh, test group around the country and you say, listen, on channel 79, you know, on Sunday, we're going to air this pilot and then we're going to call you after and we're going to ask your opinion. And, you know, those are a little bit more uh, informative, but I still think it's a very flawed process because some of the highest testing shows that we ever had never made it to air. And some of the shows that didn't test well, you know, did unbelievably well. Desperate Housewives, the show didn't test that well. The characters tested unbelievably well. Um, you know, and then there's been lots of shows that have tested really well and they get on the air and nobody watches them. And there's so many different reasons for that. I mean, if you test a show that's about a crippled mom who's raising bunnies and an orphan, it's going to test well, even if it's unwatchable. It's just, you know, when you go, Barry, did you like the crippled orphan who's raging? You know, it just happens. And so I, I've never been a fan of testing, but the testing comes in. And then there's this scheduling room, which I think it probably varies at networks. But for me, it was myself um, and um, Jeff Bader, who was our head of scheduling. Um, and then uh, Jeff's kind of a, a guy who worked for Jeff, Steve Kern. And then we'd have a couple other people and Ann would uh, weigh in and Bob Iger would weigh in. Um, and then we would have different people come in and out cause you've got to look at a schedule from a financial basis to how much is it going to cost? So you're talking with business affairs, but you literally are putting a whiteboard up and you're starting to just put the pieces in place. And, um, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of network presidents, it, the first decisions are usually really easy. Um, and it's those last ones where you're usually like one show short, but you got to fill the spot. Um, you can't go like, we'll just go dark on Friday. Um, so, you know, those were always the tough decisions. Um, but you try to, you know, at least I tried to make the decisions that were mine as much as I could and fight for those decisions because, um, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to lose and you're going to make mistakes, make them your mistakes. Um, and, and they let me do that. 
tell me a fight that you won that turned out well and tell me a fight that you lost that turned out uh not so well i mean desperate housewives was not something that the the network particular you know that the higher ups particularly liked they didn't quite understand it um and obviously you know we won that fight and 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 put that on and it worked um you know, sometimes that we would fight for things like I remember uh, near the end of my tenure, I fought for a show called My Generation, which after my time, I think, you know, just tanked. Um, and, you know, uh, if I had been there at the time, the, the finger would have been squarely pointed at me. It wasn't because I wasn't. But, you know, again, I think y you just have to go with your gut uh, at the end of the day. And I tried to tune out testing and and what other people I was more con interested in, you know, at the screenings, listening to you know, if everyone hated something, then I'd have to listen to that. Or if everyone loves something, I'd have to listen to that. It, you know, the individual opinion, you have to filter out because they're going to be some people who love things and some people hate things. But really listening to the overall trends was, to me, where you could get some good information. Let me just ask you, uh, just say a little something about these new ventures. Promise Winery, you talked a tiny bit about that. How you Tell me what's happening with that. What's the goal for that? The, you know, the goal, it's really a dream come true. I grew up in France uh, after I was uh, 10 years old. I moved to Paris. My dad was an educator, had master in marriage school in Paris, fell in love with wine, moved out here. And in 2004, when I got married to my wife, um, she said, you got to promise me that we're going to pursue this, this dream of wine. And we got married in Napa and we started making a Cabernet in 04. Um, and it's been recognized by Rob Report and uh, Robert Parker and, uh, and Galani and all these amazing reviews. But for us, it's just an amazing project. We make a Cabernet, we do about 300 cases a year. Um, we are partnered with Rich Frank of Frank Family Vineyards. Um, we just launched a rosé. That's what I brought you. So uh, for the summer out here, it's really great. And it's it's just a labor of love. It, we keep it small and, and just really love it and enjoy it. Original Moonshine. Original Moonshine is... Um, I went to school in upstate New York and we loved grain alcohol. Um, we used to pour it in garbage cans. So I, I remember those parties. Yeah. I, you remember I, those parties? I, I don't, I, I literally, you just drink a little bit of that stuff. The fact you remember the party is actually a good thing. It's unbelievable. <laughs> All I remember is waking up, face down in a uh, communal bathroom many times. <laughs> That's all I remember. Yeah, well, Moonshine can do that to you. So I had this idea of, of doing uh, flavored grain alcohols, and I hooked up with this my now partner, Brad Beckerman, who's a brilliant uh, marketer and entrepreneur. He started junk, uh, Trunk, which was the first guys who did the high-end rock and roll T-shirts. Um, and he had the idea that it's Moonshine. It's the American spirit. And so uh, – we ended up starting it in uh, in uh, 2010 um, and launched it uh, in New York. And it's a clear corn whiskey. We're coming out with flavors actually in uh, about a month and a half. Um, and it's you know it's it's in about 10 states now. Um, Moonshine.com. You can go online and check it out. So it's like smart water for alcoholics. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a wait. Wait. New tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Pure pet. Yeah, I, I ended up doing the Ironman triathlon and I was so, uh, whenever I do something, I dive in, I get the best dietitian, the best trainer, et cetera. And so all these nutritionists, dietitians, everything would say like, you got to take these 18 things. And I was like, this is just too much to take. So I hired a PhD from USC, a wonderful academic, um, who basically pulled all the white papers about all the stuff that you see in whole foods and what's real, what's not. 
what combinations, what dosages. And so I created a drink for myself as I was training for the Ironman that my coaches then said, you got to sell this. It simplifies everything. So, um, we launched it just online uh, a year ago and, uh, it's, it comes in a small, like emergency like pack, you pour it in water, you drink it. It's got your multivitamin, your antioxidants. Um, it's healthy energy. It doesn't have any, um, caffeine, uh, guarine, taurine, any of the, you know, stuff that's getting such bad press. So stimulant free. Um, and it, it really simplifies, you know, that ability to, you know, supplement your workouts. It's not a magic pill. It's not something that's going to change your life if you don't, you know, eat healthy and work out. But in combination with that, it's pretty extraordinary. And we have, you know, the best triathlete in the world, Chris McCormick is one of our sponsors. And it's, it's been a great, great journey. Awesome. Biggest disappointment in your career. Boy, biggest disappointment in my career. Um, Listen, I think biggest disappointment is, is getting fired, you know, um, turned out to be the greatest blessing, but you never want to go out like that. You'd prefer to, you know, go out on top and, and make it your own choice. Um, uh, but I don't know that I would have had the, the point of view or the wherewithal to do that. So sometimes you're given things that, you know, that you, you need and, and I really needed it at that point and it's been a life changer, but definitely a disappointment to, you know, and probably the biggest disappointment, you know, definitely shows could be disappointing, but in the grand scale of things, that's just not that important. You know, things work, things don't work. Uh, the odds of things working are so minimal that if you take that home with you every day, you're going to destroy yourself. Proudest professional moment. Desperate housewives, um, when it premiered and it was so successful because Mark Cherry and I had worked together at, um, at Wit Thomas. He Relationships. Was, yeah. He was a comedy writer, junior comedy writer. And when I had been at the studio, my friend Andy Patman called me, agent. And he's now at Paradigm. Yeah, he's now at Paradigm. And he's, uh, he was representing Mark, who had, you know, some people may know this, but his agent had embezzled all his money. Not Andy, his previous agent. And, and he had basically taken two and a half years off of the business, thought maybe he'd quit, wrote Desperate Housewives on spec, and then it was passed on by almost everyone in town, uh, every network and studio and everything. Andy sent it to me because he knew I knew Mark and we were good friends. And, uh, and I loved it. And Suzanne Patmore and, and Josh Berry, who worked for me at the time, they loved it. Um, so when you find something like that and you believe it and you fight for it and it becomes what it becomes, you know, that's a really meaningful thing. You know, uh, when you're running the network, you know, if something wins an Emmy, everybody goes, you know, I like to thank the network and it's, you know, you're giving, given credit for thousands of people's work and you're giving blame for thousands of people's work. But on that one, you know, it felt real when Mark was up there getting the accolades that were so well-deserved and, um, it just, it, it was a really proud moment to, you know, that's why you get in the businesses to be involved in things that have an impact that will have a legacy and, you know, that you really, you were a part of. I have a final question. What advice do you have for the young executive who's trying to work their way through the quagmire of so many different executives trying to take them down to move up to the next level? And then what advice do you have for the young actor or comedian or whoever it might be trying to make their mark like Zach Braff? The actors, you know, I would get lots and lots of friends and 
family who would send me, you know, some young actor or actress who was wanting to break into the business. And honestly, the first thing that I would always say to them was, is there anything else in the world that you want to do? Um, because it is so hard. And I think that it has to be your only choice. You know, working with Johnny Galecki this year, you know, he said to me at one point, he goes like, this is it. Like, I don't do anything else. I'm not going to do anything else. And I think, you know, that is just about following your passion. Um, I think if, you know, if you're getting into the business because you think of the glitz and the glamour and the money, then you're going to fail miserably because it's so not about that 99.9% of the time. Um, so my advice would really be, you know, do your homework. I think study your craft more. I think, you know, uh, in, in cities other than Los Angeles, there's a lot more theater going on. There's a lot more real study of the, of the acting craft, you know, People don't go on tour the same way they used to on the stand-up circuit. You know, somebody gets a little bit of stand-up success and off to a deal, um, and they don't develop their point of view. So I think once you get past, if, if, if you do the passion check and you're in, then I would say really study your craft, live your life a little bit, get more seasoning, and then get in there. In terms of executives, uh, not dissimilar. I mean, I think that um, you really have to pursue your passions you know, my dad gave me the best piece of advice when I took the network job. Uh, he's an educator his whole life, and um, he's always encouraged his kids to do whatever they wanted. And we're, I have two sisters, we're completely different. But what he did is, you know, he said, listen, make sure that whatever you do, that it's your choices and that you're making the decisions because you will feel good about those no matter what happens. You'll feel terrible if you're making decisions to climb the ladder to make your bosses happy, to make, you know, the industry happy. Um, and that was a great piece of advice. And I think, you know, when I was working for Tony Thomas, um, you know, the one thing that I knew is that even though I was a slave and I was, you know, getting dry cleaning or whatever, I did that job as well as I possibly could. I would drive him around town and I would go to his assistant the night before and say, where are we driving tomorrow? And I would drive it the night before. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, when they're moving up the ladder, they get a job as an assistant and they go, this sucks. And it's like, yeah, it does suck. But trust me, your boss is never going to help you if you're doing a shitty job at that job just because you think you should be doing something bigger. Um, and people will notice you if you're doing an amazing job and they'll go, why is this guy an assistant? He's doing an amazing job. He could do 10 times this. So, you know, I guess those are two disparate pieces of advice, but that would probably be the best I could give. Oh, man. Uh, let me tell you something. This podcast was the best you could give. It was amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be here. And again, I'd like to thank my first sponsor ever, Global Cash Card, for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. All right. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Uh, this has been so enlightening. It's going to be so inspirational for everybody who listens. And I'm so grateful you came by. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, my man. It's great to see you and great to see you doing this. And uh, hope we will see each other soon. We will. We will. All right. As always, this is Barry Katz for Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory 
I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.